Welcome to the PCTR Podcast. I'm Robbie Itterberg, Senior Pastor. I want to thank you for listening today. We hope that you hear from God and that this podcast encourages you in your faith journey. You can connect with us on social at facebook.com slash PCTRNJ or our Instagram handle, PCTRNJ. Or you can find more information or resources at PCTR.org. Have a great day. Peace. This morning, we are continuing the sermon series that we began a few weeks ago called Asking for a Friend, Honest Questions for God. And each week in this series, we are looking at another question that if you've been a follower of Jesus for some time, it may be a question that you feel somewhat embarrassed to even be asking. You might feel ashamed that you don't have a response. You might just feel uncertain about the answer or response to the question because all of these questions, I'm just going to acknowledge, are challenging and require us to think perhaps in ways that we are uncomfortable thinking about. Each of these questions, I also believe, is a question that for those who may not consider themselves people of faith, if that's you, these types of questions might be the reason why. That these questions, you haven't received a satisfactory answer, and so they remain a stumbling block and a hindrance for you to be able to consider becoming a person of faith. And as we look at a response to these questions each week, my hope is that it will spur on further learning for you and further conversation for all of us. Because we want to be a community that, where it is safe to ask these questions. But also hope that it's equipping you to have good conversations. It's one thing to talk about things, it's another thing to talk about them well. And so I hope that these will equip you for conversations among each other, but also with those friends and family in your life who may have these kinds of questions. If, you, if you're behind, if you want to get caught up on any of the messages, or if you want to share these with a friend or someone that may be a conversation partner with you, you can always find them on our podcast or our YouTube channel, PCTRNJ, and so you can check those out. This morning, as we move into the question, I just want to acknowledge that that the issue we're going to tackle today is perhaps the most difficult in the entire series. And and it's difficult for for Christians and non-Christians alike. It's a question that I think hits us in the face each and every day. It's a question that is unavoidable for all of us. And it's a question that's not just an intellectual question that we wonder about, but it is an emotional question that we feel all the time. It's the question of suffering. Why? Why are we now 20 months into a pandemic with 4.55 million people dead across the world? 700,000 in the U.S. alone, we crossed that threshold this week. Why do people die? Why do bad things happen? Why do families break down? Why do people walk out on us? Why do we lose jobs? Why are there people starving? Why do parents bury their children? Why? And for Christians, as we wade into this question, it's not just about why does this happen. There's an even finer question, a question that's been posed throughout history as the problem of evil, the problem of pain or suffering. And it's usually set up something like this. If if God is truly all-powerful and if God is loving, then why do these bad things happen? Why do people suffer? 
And for some trying to deal with this question, they, they seek to reject the characteristics of God, choosing either all-powerful or loving to reject that it, no, God couldn't possibly be all-powerful because look, the reality of suffering, he must not be able to overcome all of the suffering in the world. Or maybe he is all-powerful, but look at the suffering. He must not love us. He must not really be for us. He must not really care. And, and I want to, as we wade into this this morning, we're going to try to reconcile these. We're going to try to hold all of these things together. Is it possible? We're going to move into this and, and hopefully humbly and gently kind of step into this question and offer a response, but I'm going to just acknowledge it's a response that may not satisfy all of your needs and wants this morning. Because I hope that it's an intelligible and thoughtful response, but the reality of the pain for some is so real and so powerful that it just feels like too much to overcome. So we're going to try to step into this question through 1 Peter chapter 1. And if you'd like, you can follow along on the screen as we listen for God's word speaking to us this morning. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the end results of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. When they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, even angels long to look into these things. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And let's pray as we move into this together. Heavenly Father, as we step into your word and into this question, invite your spirit to be among us, not just leading our thoughts, but, but meeting us in those places of hurt and pain and suffering, meeting us in those dark places, that you would bring light, that you would bring hope, that you'd bring healing. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. So this passage begins with this air of hope, this promise of the, the living hope of the resurrection, uh, of the inheritance in heaven, of the salvation that is to come. And Peter is acknowledging to them in verse 6, in all of these things you greatly rejoice. And then he moves, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. See, Peter's writing to people who are absolutely in the heart of suffering. 
that they're under the, the persecution of the Roman Empire, and so that makes them subject just because of their faith in Christ to beatings, to ultimately it could come anything up all the way to martyrdom itself. They're in a time where they're being rejected by so much of their families for making a profession of faith. It would isolate them, and they'd become objects of scorn and hate among their friends. I mean, so they understand they're in the midst of suffering, and they're suffering a particular kind of suffering, all kinds of trials, but the reading from Job earlier puts an even bigger blanket on it for us and just basically says that, that pain and suffering are inevitable. And we know that from our own experience, from life. That we're born, Job says, we're born into trouble. A trial is inevitable. It's part of the human condition. And so many attempts to, to deal with what does suffering mean and how to move through it have come up. It's why re- whole religions have formed in the first place. And for many, as I've acknowledged, they reject the existence of God, or at least the characteristics that we understand of a Christian God, on the basis of suffering and pain. And as, as we get into this, I wonder, though, on what basis is God rejected? On what basis do we as people, do we determine that suffering and pain are somehow wrong? That they're bad. And that because it's wrong, it's worthy of rejecting God. Christopher Hitchens is, a, is among those who have been called the new atheists. And he, he was outspoken and he was a writer. And, and actually, tragically, in 2011, he died of esophageal cancer. But as a part of that journey in 2010, there was a, an NPR story done about him where they acknowledged that in in Hitchinson's writing about his own diagnosis, he asserted, to the dumb question, why me, the cosmos barely bothers to return the reply, why not? Hitchens concedes that the the question is, that this dumb question is bound to occur, but for him it's not going to occur very long because he had already decided what he believed even before he became sick. And he says that I am here... uh, meaning here alive on this earth as a product of a process of evolution which doesn't make very many exceptions and which rates life relatively cheaply. See, for, for Hitchens, asking this question why, why is there suffering, is a dumb question because we shouldn't expect anything else. That we're just products of the evolutionary process which has no mercy on anyone and doesn't really care about our life. Richard Dawkins is an evolutionary biologist, and he picks up that same train of thought. He says the universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. And yet most of us continue to ask why. We continue to have a sense that suffering is not how life should be, but why do we ask why? The atheists call this a silly question, a dumb question, because according to a really purely scientific view of life and the world, why should we expect anything else? Because there's no moral foundation to the universe, just pitiless indifference. But I wonder that because we keep asking why, does this not for us point to a longing or at least open a door to the possibility of God? 
Doesn't it point to a sense that there must be some sort of moral foundation to the universe upon which we can reject suffering as wrong, as not the way it's supposed to be? That we just, we know somewhere deep inside of us that we are not just the sum process of pitiless indifference. And I think our outrage against suffering, that it doesn't make sense as the foundation for rejecting God as much as it is an invitation to consider, is there more to reality, more to life, more, more to the suffering than I've been able to understand so far? And so for, for some thoughts from a Christian perspective on suffering, I want to begin with just where suffering comes from in the first place. And from a Christian perspective, I think suffering comes from the fact that we are made to love and to worship. That, that you and I were made to have a relationship with our Creator, a relationship where we are loved by Him and we can reciprocate, we can turn back and love Him in response, where we can recognize our special relationship as a created being to, that is made, that we can acknowledge Him and give Him honor and glory and worship. This is what we were made for. But doesn't love, don't you think love and or worship, to truly be love or worship, authentically, genuinely has to be freely given? Not, de- not controlled, demanded? I mean, you just think about your relationship with people in your life. I think about if I were to go home and I, I started demanding and controlling and forcing Abby somehow to love me, I, I just don't think that's going to work very well. Matter of fact, I think if I tried, that would be evidence in and of itself that, no, there is, in fact, plenty of free will to go around. Right? That God could force us to love him, force us to worship him, but the reality is that would be a lot more like robots, not a relationship where we can give him love and worship. And so to, to give it freely, it has to open the door to genuine alternatives. And so it has to be possible that rather than love, I would hate. Rather than bless, I would curse. Rather than honor, I would defile. Rather than worship, I would reject. C.S. Lewis talks about this in his book, Problem of Pain, and he says this, we try to exclude the possibility of suffering, which the order of nature and the existence of free wills involves, and you find, that you, have ex- you find that you have excluded life itself. In other words, he's saying that if we try to get rid of suffering, then we're going to close the door on the possibility of love and worship to be freely given. And so if we're going to keep that open, if that's the possibility, if that's what we're made for, then suffering is a necessary part of the risk. And, and the reality is that possibility was opened, and what we find from a Christian perspective Early on in our history, Genesis chapter 3 talks about how Adam and Eve, rather than choosing love, choosing worship, chose the path of sin, rebellion, rejection, and in doing so, introduced pain and suffering to themselves, between them in their relationship, between their relationship with God and actually even creation itself. And So the reality is we live from there, from a Christian perspective, suffering comes from our own choices, some of the time. That a pastor, when we lived in Seattle, he was talking about this one time, and he was talking about the reality of our own choices, that some of them are mundane and some of them are profound, and suffering can result from either. The mundane, we know, can come you know, in, in lots of different forms. For me, it might look like this. It might look like I see in, in that incredible sauce or gravy, if you're you know, Jersey Italian, sorry, I don't want to offend anyone. 
there might be that giant chunk of, of garlic, and I see it, and I know I should avoid it, because if I eat that, it's not going to go well later. But I eat it anyway, at least some of the time. For you, maybe it's ice cream and you're lactose intolerant, right? We make these mundane, everyday choices that we know we make the choice and we bring the suffering on ourselves. And it happens in, in much more profound ways, we know as well. I mean, if we choose to drink and drive, if we choose to walk out on a relationship rather than to stick it out, we choose to let full vent of our frustration. Right? Some of the time, suffering comes because of our own choices, and some of the time, it comes because others around us make choices that affect us, that they make choices out of their own free will, that they could love you, but instead they hurt you. And that happens all the time. And it happens individually, one-to-one in relationships, but it can also happen corporately when, when this sense of kind of self-interest becomes encoded within a society, within a culture, within an organization, and it creates a system wherein some are the haves and some are the have-nots, some are the oppressed and some are the oppressors. I mean, you can, this is where the reality of racism and sexism and classism and all of these realities that are part of, of human societies throughout history it's all because of this self-interest and sin that creates pain and suffering for some. And at the end of it all, the reality is that, that our sin has broken everything. There is not a part of the creation of the universe, of the cosmos, that has not been affected by it. Romans chapter 8, verse, starting in verse 20, it says this, For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. The reality is sin has broken the very fabric of the world that we live in. And it's groaning, longing to be restored then why are there volcanoes that wipe out whole villages? Why are there hurricanes that take out whole cities? Why is the reality of cancer? Why does Alzheimer's wreak havoc in so many lives of the people we love? Why is it that in the beautiful natural course of child conception and development that sometimes the cells don't divide the way that they're intended to? Because there's not a part of creation that has not been affected by the devastation of sin. Sin's broken everything. So why doesn't God get rid of it? Why doesn't he get rid of this suffering? I mean, first we had the possibility that we could love and worship him freely. But this passage also tells us in verse 7, after saying you, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials, he goes on to say that these have come, these trials have come, so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. There's a so that statement here. It's these have come so that. Trials, suffering, pain has come so that your faith may be proved genuine. In other words, God, God uses suffering and pain as a tool within our lives to refine our faith. It's like gold, as it says in this passage, is refined. When the heat is turned up, the imperfections in the gold start to come out. And the same happens in our lives. When the heat of suffering turns up, the imperfections of our faith, the, the, the reality of our faith starts to actually rise up and come out. And we, we see this 
Because in those moments of suffering, there are things that are squeezed out of us. It squeezes out what are we really trusting in? What are we really relying on? What are we holding on to? What gives us real hope? What gives us meaning? What gives us purpose? What is the true foundation of our life that is built on? And think of your times of greatest suffering, greatest agony, greatest pain. Those are some of the questions that have come out. What do I really have that is firm and solid? What do I really have to hold on to? And suffering is used as a tool, God tells us, to, uh, to strengthen and refine faith so that our trust in him grows and grows. And as it really grows, it brings in, in us maturity. And Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4 that ultimately it does this work in us where we become more like Jesus where we become transformed, where our lives, our character starts to reflect that of Jesus so that God uses suffering to make us more like him. Ultimately, Peter told us, so that it may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Now I want you to hold on to that and and look at it because the result is the end of a process, not the beginning, isn't it? It's the end, not the beginning. And that's really important, I think, when we think about suffering. If you're a baker, you know, if you bake cookies, you don't just walk into the kitchen, open the oven, and expect the cookies to be there, do you? All right, I mean, I'm not a baker, so maybe that's my problem. Maybe I just need to go to the oven, and maybe they're already there. But no, it's a process. There's a process that goes into these cookies. And and the, the result is the cookies that you enjoy, but the process, you can't skip the process to get there. And so suffering is a process that ultimately results in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus is revealed. But there's a lot between the now that caused the suffering and the then that is the result. And what is that in between? That's called life. Every part of it. It's called All of our questions, our doubts, our fears, our insecurities, our longings, our disappointments, our pain. It's not pretending that none of that exists. It's about embracing and moving through it, though I know that's challenging for some. But it happens. The invitation of suffering is actually to come closer to God in the process of suffering. This is what the psalmists do all the time. If you're not familiar with the Psalms of Lament, go and look them up. Immerse yourself in them. Psalm 13, how long, O Lord? How long am I going to wait for you to show up and do something? I am in pain. Psalm 73, Psalm of Asaph, where he looks at the world and he says, why is it, God, that I look out and I see that the wicked seem to prosper? Life is easy for them. But me and the righteous, we're trying the best we can. We're doing everything we can to honor you, and yet it's a struggle every step of the way, and I'm still hurting. I mean, these are, these are in the scriptures, This is the invitation in the suffering for you to draw near to God, to go through the process, not to deny it. Some of you were told that you're not allowed to ask the questions. You're not allowed to have doubts. You're not allowed to have fears. You're not allowed to have pain. You can't say that to God. You just need to trust. You were expected to have the end result of the process before you even got into the process. But that's not fair. That's not God's invitation. He's inviting you to live in the process of suffering and in this journey to allow hope and faith to grow right in the midst of the pain. There's a book called A Grace Disguised by Gerald Sitzer. Amazing book. I encourage anybody to read it. It's his reflections on what happened out of a tragic accident. In a car accident, he lost his mother, his wife, and his youngest daughter all at the same time. 
we can't really even begin to wrap our minds around the pain that he felt in all of that. But he so graciously offers this book as, as reflections on his journey through this devastation of pain and suffering. And at one point he says, early on, I, I was just so broken. And I had what he describes as a waking dream. In this dream, he saw the sun setting in the west. And, and he was so terrified of the darkness that was coming that he, he was trying to run and, and trying to run faster and faster to chase the sun, to stay within its light. And of course, we know we can't chase the sun. So in sun goes down over the horizon, the darkness envelops him, and he collapses in hopelessness and despair in the midst of his pain. And he shared this dream with a cousin of his who, who, who was talking, who shared with him about a, a poem by, by a guy named John Donne. And in this poem, the whole thing is built on the idea that, that on a map, east and west seem farthest removed from each other, but on a globe, they actually touch one another. They actually meet. And his sister grabbed on to this idea and she said, you know what? The quickest way for anyone to reach the sun and the light of day is not to run west, chasing after the setting sun, but to head east, plunging into the darkness until one comes to the sunrise. See, that's the invitation to the process of suffering. Yes, it's hard. Yes, it's awful. Yes, it's painful. But the fastest way to the light is to not deny it, but to engage the reality of it, to plunge into the darkness and emerge in the midst of the light. And that light perhaps becomes most clear when we, when we think about the Christian perspective on suffering because it's not just about having the opportunity to love and worship freely. It's not just about the tool that God uses to shape us and grow our faith. It's not just about the process. But the reality is that a Christian response to suffering acknowledges this, that without suffering, we wouldn't know how much God loves us. That in verse 10 in what we read this morning, Peter is talking about the prophets who have been writing, who it's been revealed to them that, that the Messiah was going to come, but not as a conquering Messiah, but as a suffering Messiah. And they longed to know when that was going to happen. When would this suffering Messiah come? And here's what we discover, that yes, suffering is, is awful. Yes, it's painful. But in Jesus, the greatest suffering of all eternity was reserved for him. I know we want to know why is it happening, why me, why us, but if it were not for suffering that was possible, that was inevitable, then there would have been no suffering for Jesus and there would be no hope for salvation, no hope of eternity, no hope of healing, no hope of getting to the sunrise through the darkness and sin. See, we can point to suffering as the evidence against God, but I think God actually says, no, no, no. I want you to look at the suffering so that you can see how much I love you. You'll see what love really looks like. I mean, just think about the last day of Jesus' own life and the suffering that he endured, the existential suffering in the garden as he went to pray and he's pouring out his heart saying, Father, if there's any other way to do this, if there's any other way to bring the sunrise, to bring the healing, let's do it that way because I don't want to die. And he knew what he was going to experience. And the pain and the agony was so intense in anticipation that he was bleeding drops of blood. And then the pain of relational suffering. As one of his most intimate friends, he spent three years with Judas, goes and betrays him. He's arrested and the rest of his friends reject him, turn their back on him, run away from him. 
the physical suffering that we know so well. When we think about the reality of the floggings, the beating, the punching, the crown of thorns on his head, exhausted, carrying the cross outside of town, finally the nails piercing his hands, piercing his feet, being hoisted up only to suffocate to death because he can't exhale. And I think all of that suffering was nothing compared to the spiritual suffering that Jesus experienced on that cross as he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the eternal Son of God experienced for the only time in eternity, past, present, or future, the forsakenness of the Father, the intimacy with the Father broken because he who knew no sin in that moment became sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God. See, he took on the suffering and the pain of our sin. See, God uses suffering not just to shape us, not just as a tool to grow us and our faith, but to demonstrate to us how loved you are. The greatest suffering in all eternity he reserved for himself so that he could give you a hope and me a hope and the world a hope because Jesus rose from that brutal death And in his resurrection, he gave the living hope that Peter's describing in this passage. He gave a living hope that suffering is not the end of the story. Suffering is not meaningless. Suffering is not purposeless. Suffering is not pitiless indifference. In the suffering, we are going somewhere. We are being shaped from the inside out. And we are loved. If you're a follower of Jesus, I just want to give you one last kind of warning as we come to the end. An invitation. In the midst of suffering, in the reality of suffering in the world, be careful not to be Job's friends who came through and decided to explain to Job why he was suffering even though they had no idea. Be careful to, when we make assumptions about why people around us are suffering. We're all pretty quick, if we're honest, to make sure that the victim knows all the reasons that they've contributed to their suffering. We don't need to give the answer. We don't need to explain it. We don't need to try to intellectually rationalize the reality of why someone's suffering. In their suffering, they need us to enter into it as Jesus entered into ours. We need to sit with them in it. Be present to them. Hold them. Suffer with them. That's what compassion literally means to suffer with. And so God allows suffering so that we can love him and we can freely worship him. He uses it as a tool to grow our faith, to shape us from the inside out. He uses it as the process to bring us closer to him. He ultimately uses suffering to show us what love really looks looks like and invites us to enter into the suffering of those around us so that we can love them as he has loved us. 